Informing America's farmers and ranchers. This is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Jesse Allen. And thank you for joining us here today on AOA, Agriculture of America. Great to have you along for the conversation. Hopefully you're staying warm in your part of the country as well as the polar vortex has uh, settled into uh, pretty much everywhere between the Rockies and the Appalachian Mountains. We're going to talk about that and uh, get some updates on the weather here in the U.S. and South America coming up on today's program. We'll be joined by DTN meteorologist John Baranek coming up here in segment two in just a little bit. In segment three, we're going to get an update on some of the uh, deadlines in front of us on Capitol Hill. What does it mean for appropriations, a government shutdown? Could we get another continuing resolution or more? Josh Bakey with Farm Progress going to join us coming up after the bottom of the hour for a conversation. And then at the end of the show today, we're going to get an update on some of the 2024 priorities for the Engine Technology Forum with Alan Schaefer. He is going to be joining us here in segment four today. So a lot to get to on the program. Thanks again for joining us. Let's start with a look at the markets as we got through a three-day holiday weekend, getting back to trading after the big USDA data dump. Darren Newsom, Senior Market Analyst at Bar Chart, is with us. And Darren, great to have you with us here today on AOA. And uh, it's kind of an interesting uh, interesting time of the markets as uh, we reset things here after the big USDA data dump from Friday. Yeah, you know, we've got the nonsense out of the way. We had a three-day weekend. So basically, you know, we're, we're, we're starting, we're actually starting January now. You know, we've got that, you know, that's gone. That's history. Uh, now, there were certainly some interesting things that happened Friday. None of it had to do with with uh, USDA's make-believe numbers. But, you know, there was a lot of interesting things happening uh, last week as we basically closed out, you know, all of that uh, all of that silliness. And, and I think the two things that stood out to me the most, uh, number one, is the change in open interest that we saw in the corn market. It added almost 42,700 contracts Friday alone as the market sold off. Uh, but from Tuesday's close through Friday's close, it added 74,500 contracts. And this after funds were already holding a net short futures position of about 173,000 contracts with the record large net short futures position at 235,000 contracts. So, you know, what is that? 62,000 contracts away. It's very possible that by the time we get to today's close, and we get our, you know, set up for, you know, the next round of CFTC reports. We could, we could see the corn non-commercial net short approaching that record large. Now, that, you know, it sounds bearish, but what it does is kind of what we're seeing here to start this week is it opened the door to a round of non-commercial short covering, which to me is what's also going on in soybeans. You know, the market mm-hmm. rallied twenty some cents off its Friday low, and to me that looked like it was nothing more than short covering. Well, and thinking of uh, all that data that we've got out of out of the way, out of the market, you know, into the market, out of the way now, and we can focus back on some of these fundamentals. Uh, mm-hmm. I'd have to wonder here, Darren, with the case of corn, you know, with this short position here. I mean, how how cheap does corn have to get to spur some buying and some demand activity and some end users who are trying to pry corn out of farmers' hands here? I mean. Uh, a lot of dynamics going on in this corn market right now, Darren. 
there, there are a lot of dynamics going on. And, you know, the, the thing is, we've seen demand. I mean, we, we've got more feed demand going on. So, so these feeders are able to pick up corn almost seemingly when they want to. Uh, and, you know, we've got exports that are running much above uh, last year's levels, but again, exports are the smallest uh, of our export, or excuse me, of our demand category. So, you know, to me, if we look at available stocks to use at the end of the month, and we could track it every day uh, based on the cash market, what the cash market's telling us is there's right now there's still plenty of supplies to go around. So, you know, we've got basis still running along its its previous five year lows. Uh, we're seeing some seasonal firming here, but not a lot. Uh, so again, there's no real there's no real scare right now. Uh, again, merchandisers are able to get a hold of the supplies they need to meet demand, uh, and that's even with demand picking up. So that tells us that supplies are actually larger than what everyone else wanted to talk about, except you know the market was telling us something different. So we've got plenty of supplies right now. Now it'll be interesting to see if those bin doors just slam shut at this point, uh, maybe for the rest of the winter and early spring, and then once we get through planting, they all of a sudden open up again. And we're we're hit with this flood of uh, hit with this flood of grain. That'll be that'll be something worth watching. In terms of these grain markets as a whole, do the eyes of traders immediately go back to South American weather as we're getting ready to start harvest of soybeans in Brazil and then turn around and uh, plant the safrina corn crop? I mean, do, is that where traders' eyes pretty much go immediately? Is right back to South America? I think so. And, and you know, so so with, you know, forecasts like what John's going to be talking about here in a little bit, uh, you know, that that's where the attention is right now is, you know, what is, you know, what's what's the Brazilian crop really look like? And, you know, how, are they getting some rain across? You know, are they still getting some rain? Are they forecast to get more rain across central Brazil, you know, for the for the Safrina crop and all of these things? So, yes, you know, these these markets being weather derivatives, uh, this being the time of year it is, I, I do think you're, you're right. The eyeballs are going to immediately go back to South America. Darren, let's go over to uh, the livestock trade as well. I know all this Arctic cold weather has uh, no doubt had an effect on uh, feedlot country and our animals out there. It kind of a mixed bag to start off here on this Tuesday. Any notes for you uh, as you look at the uh, livestock trade? It has been interesting, as you pointed out. You know, we've seen these these winter storms, and I know we see winter storms not every year, but but off and on. Uh, and the markets, you know, both live and feeder cattle really haven't reacted. We could throw lean hogs in there across the Midwest, you know. Uh, often that means, you know, we can't get hogs to town. Uh, you know, they can't, they're, you know, hogs can't get too cold if bad things happen. And, you know, we so we usually see the markets react. And, and all three markets are relatively calm this time around for this polar vortex. So uh, it has been interesting to watch. Do I think we could see some 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 buying coming in? Yes, I think we could, you know, funds could get interested in this, but they just aren't showing any interest right now. Right now, when it comes to investment traders, their eyes are on, you know, their eyes are on the U.S. stock indexes, and not just U.S., but global stock indexes. We've seen big numbers coming out of the Nikkei and, and you know, Japanese Nikkei and, and elsewhere. So, you know, we know that investment traders are getting more interested in going back into equities. We've got indexes going to new all-time highs, and they're just not as interested in, the commodities at this point. What could change that? We're going to get to see some sort of supply and demand change. We're going to have to see where this winter weather has actually reduced or cut into the amount of supply of livestock or, or slowed the amount of supply of livestock down. Right now, we're just not seeing it and funds aren't reacting. Darren, real quick, outside markets, any notes for you in stocks or energies here this week? 
Yeah, the big thing I'll be looking at would be energy sector. Uh, you know, we've got some seasonal moves going on in distillates, kind of quiet start there. But over in natural gas, we saw we saw natural gas fall almost 10 percent overnight. Uh, again, that's just the nature of the beast, but it'll certainly be worth keeping an eye on this week as weather forecasts for the last half of January certainly look warmer than they do uh, here this morning. Well, we always appreciate the insight. Darren Newsom, Senior Market Analyst at Bar Chart. Thanks for joining us on AOA today, Darren. Stay warm, and we will talk to you again next week. All right, Jesse. Thank you. You do the same. Darren Newsom there with Bar Chart joining us here on AOA. And speaking of the weather, coming up next, we'll talk with John Baranek from DTN. That's on the way right after this here on AOA, Agriculture of America. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, as we examine how the modern cooperative system solves today's biggest challenges. We'll be talking to CHS experts in farmers and ranchers just like you, and we'll learn how cooperatives apply innovation and technology to help co-op owners get more value every day. Join us Around the Table every Tuesday, or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. Join us the first Wednesday of every month on AOA for the latest episode of The Monthly Grind with our friends at the National Corn Growers Association. We'll discuss the latest topics surrounding the corn industry, the relationships between corn and other parts of the agricultural supply chain, the newest initiatives and partnerships from NCGA's Market Development Action Team, and much more. That's the first Wednesday of every month for The Monthly Grind on AOA. It's a show you don't want to miss. Paid non-attorney spokesperson. Are you over the age of 60 and been diagnosed with lung cancer? If so, you and your family may qualify for a cash award. Our experienced attorneys are standing by to evaluate whether you have a lung cancer claim that qualifies you for a cash award. The consultation is absolutely free and there is no risk and no money out of pocket. We only receive a fee when we secure you and your family a settlement. 250,000 people are diagnosed with lung cancer every year. You're not alone in this battle. We can help make sure that you and your family are financially safe and that medical expenses are covered. Again, if you've been diagnosed with lung cancer and are over age 60, call now. Don't delay. There are deadlines for filing claims. We're standing by 24-7. Call us at 1-844-903-1744. 1-844-903-1744. That's 1-844-903-1744. Attorney Advertising. William Stephacker Jr. is the attorney responsible for this ad. Main office, Grant, Pennsylvania. May not be available in all states. Being blind doesn't always look how others may think. Stargardt disease was supposed to define me. Retinitis pigmentosa aimed to overwhelm my family. It tried to cut me down. A blinding eye disease attempted to force me away from doing what I was born to do. But it cannot stop me. I have the tools. I will keep moving forward pushing past the limits of this disability. I know where to find support and where I can be seen. Great vision doesn't require great sight. 
innovative research, educational resources, supportive community. The Foundation Fighting Blindness is leading the charge in finding treatments and cures for blinding diseases. Make your impact today. Donate now at fightingblindness.org. A public service message from the Foundation Fighting Blindness. Informing America's Farmers and Ranchers, AOA. Now back to Jesse Allen. Well, just how long is the Arctic blast going to stick around? It is extremely cold across much of the country here as we work through the early part of this week. We got some fresh snow in places that don't normally see snow, and we're also watching South American weather pretty closely. Joining us for a conversation here today as we run through what is happening with the weather, DTN meteorologist John Baranek. John, good to talk with you. Hope you had a uh, good, long, extended uh, holiday weekend, John. Thanks, Jesse. I did, and luckily I stayed away from a bunch of the snow that uh, fell across the Midwest here over the over the last week, I mean, those two snowstorms were incredible. Uh, you know, we're, we looked at, you know, two feet of snow across eastern Nebraska through Illinois and all the way to Michigan. So, I mean, it was uh, it was one heck of a week of, of weather. And then you follow that up with this blast of Arctic air from the polar vortex. And whew, winter really slapped us in the face this this past week. Yeah, there is no doubt. I mean, wind chill reading 60, 70 below in portions of the Northern Plains and seeing these Arctic temperatures. I mean, you know, I, I looked at the all hazards weather map from the National Weather Service this morning and just, you know, tons of pretty colors extending all the way from the Canadian border to the uh, the Mexico border and down along the Gulf Coast. So I guess the big question is, how long is this Arctic blast going to be with us here this week? Well, the polar vortex is circling around us here across the middle of North America. So it's around here for the next uh, several days. Um, we do get a little bit of moderation kind of tomorrow. So Wednesday, Thursday timeframe across the South, at least, uh, where temperatures aren't as bitterly cold uh, the next couple of days. Um, but uh, we get another nice burst of, uh, well, I shouldn't say nice, right? <laughs> it's not another, another solid <laughs> burst of cold from the polar vortex to end the week, uh, that will come with a little bit of a clipper system. And it does look like a little bit of, of light snow for the, for portions of the plains and Midwest. Um, even the Tennessee Valley might get a little bit more snow and they saw some, some decent snow, you know, the last couple of days too. Um, but this, at least this last burst that comes through is, is, uh, pretty short lived, thankfully. Um, we get the polar vortex to kind of get kicked off the East coast this weekend. We flood the country back with mild Pacific air and we go back to a pattern that we saw, um, for most of December, uh, where we get this just solid Ridge across most of North America, a little bit of a, a trough that undercuts it across the South. And that leads to precipitation, uh, there for those Southern areas, but as rain. So, uh, we've got, some cold weather coming with another burst later this week, but we quickly flip those temperatures early next week uh, with a return to that El Nino kind of setup uh, for the for the last uh, week, full week of January. Well, John, I know that obviously a lot of folks not loving the cold and all the snow that we've gotten, but on the flip side of that, for farmers and ranchers. I have to think that all of this snow is going to equate itself to some decent moisture 
which we got a lot of areas in the Midwest that are drastically needing to improve our soil moisture ahead of spring planting. So I have to think there there's some positives to take away from all of this uh, snow and cold that we've seen, John. Absolutely. Maybe not so much with the cold, uh, unless you're yeah. worried of, unless you're worried about some insects and stuff for next year. Maybe maybe we take a little bit of a, a chunk out of their populations. But yeah, definitely with the snow. Um, you know, we saw uh, if you added up those kind of two, or you know, even the the, the storm before that, the weekend uh, prior. So the last, well, if if we look at the, la the the last two weeks here, you know, we we're looking at you know two three inches of liquid equivalent across most of the Midwest. I mean, outside of up by me in Minnesota, um, there's a lot of areas out there that just saw just a ton of precipitation, you know, a good month to two of worth of, of winter type precipitation. So that's, it's, I mean, that that's, that's good. That's eventually going to make its way into the soil. Uh, whether or not we melt a little bit off of that next week because of the, the warmer temperatures coming in, or if it takes all the way till spring, uh, it's it's going to get in there. And you know we've already seen the the water levels on the Mississippi River just shoot up dramatically from it. Um, and you know, last week's drought monitor didn't have a whole lot of change, but I expect the one that comes out here on Thursday to be much more impactful. So uh, we're looking at kind of the lowest amounts of drought I think once once this new report comes out. Since um, since you know w we got dry again in August, uh, so mm -hmm. uh, I, I think I think we're on a, a, at least a good path here for for this part of the year. John, let's go to South America here and uh, get an update from you on what we're seeing in Brazil and Argentina. I know we're kind of at that point where we're going to start soybean harvest and get ready to plant that safrina corn crop in Brazil, that second corn crop. So how are things looking i know we've seen some rain showers uh, here and there some people have talked about you know it could maybe be getting too wet that could impact safrina corn planting in some spots i guess what are you seeing what's the latest you're hearing in south america yes jesse so yeah we're kind of right at that point like you mentioned where we're starting to harvest uh the the first crop soybeans and plant the safrina corn um if if you look at the um report we just had last Friday out of the state of Matagrosa, which is the largest producer there. Uh, they're at 6% harvest of their soybeans right now. And that's uh, faster than average. So we're, we're hitting that kind of now. Usually we'd wait, and wait another week for that to really start picking up, but we're, we're starting to pick that up now. So uh, we're, we're definitely getting in there. Um, actually, this week, is, as far as central Brazil is concerned, we don't have a whole lot of showers, a lot of isolated little patchy stuff going on this week. It really picks up this weekend, though, and so um, we might have some issues there with the harvest um, uh, going into the, the the last several days of January and going into February with some some wetter than normal conditions. But if you look at their soil moisture, it's 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 real low. Uh, you know, we we've been talking about it all season long about how hot and dry it's been there in central Brazil, and they are way far behind on their soil moisture. They really need it. So I don't think they're going to complain too much about you know, having some harvest delays here and there uh, that they typically plow through that stuff anyway, um, uh, as long as it's not overly heavy. And there's some indication that, that it could be here next week um, of getting a little too heavy in some spots. But, uh, you know, they're used to working out in the rain and um, uh, they'll, they'll try to get that planted as soon as possible to take advantage of any rain that's coming because they're really worried mm -hmm. about their soil moisture there. And um, if it's not building up here during the wet season, 
that runs out real quickly when these wet season rains shut off in uh, in April or early May. John, what about overall El Nino as we uh, see the impacts of El Nino in South America, in the U.S. here? What are things looking like as we're working into the back half of January and, and moving ahead here into our year? Are we seeing El Nino start to weaken at all? What are some of the forecasts telling you in terms of this uh, current El Nino weather pattern? Yeah, usually El Ninos only last one winter season and then they degrade or, or go back to neutral uh, sometime in the spring or summer of that, that following year. So um, it looks like right now we're right about at the peak for El Nino. It, it peaked out pretty strong, um, uh, almost two degrees Celsius above normal across that entire uh, basin. And that's, I mean, that's that's real warm. That ranks it, you know, from the 1950s, uh, is where we have the, the, the longest stretch of, of reliable data. And um, it would put, it would mark it as the like fifth or sixth strongest El Nino uh, in recorded history. So it's a really strong one, mm -hmm. but um, model forecasts have it degrading really quick. Uh, if we look at our own American climate model that has it basically going into La Nina territory um, by this summer, uh, some of the more, uh, uh, other models across uh, the, the globe have it degrading at different rates and maybe not getting into La Nina by the summer or fall. But, you know, when we see El Ninos get this strong, um, they are almost always followed by uh, La Nina the following summer. So um, history suggests that we're headed towards La Nina and um, uh, that this rapid whiplash between La Nina's we've had the previous several years, El Nino this year, and then La Nina's coming up. I mean, it's it's been it's been a wild ride in the Pacific uh, for sure, and it leads to a lot of questions. Um, you know, we don't have a whole lot of history to talk about this whole whiplash effect uh, that that we've been seeing. So the, the you know forecast is pretty low confidence going into the spring and summer this year. It'll be it'll be it'll be tough to call. It'll be tough to call. It's going to be interesting, no doubt, to watch here as we move forward. And, of course, we'll stay close with you and uh, keep tabs on what's happening with the weather across the country and around the world. John Baranek, DTN Meteorologist. John, thanks for the time. Stay warm there in Minnesota, and we will talk to you again next week. Thanks, Jesse. You too. It's going to be a rough week. Well, it's going to be a rough week, but, uh, you know, bundle up, put the long Johns on, right, John? <laughs> put the long knees <laughs> on. That's right. Yep. <laughs> John Baranek, DTN meteorologist, joining us here today on AOA. Appreciate uh, his time and a look at the weather. All right, coming up next, we're going to get an update on what is happening on Capitol Hill and issues that are impacting us in Washington, D.C. We'll have a conversation with Josh Bakey, policy editor with Farm Progress. He joins us next on AOA. Every day, our brave military men and women, along with their families, make tremendous sacrifices for our freedom. Patriotic Hearts, a nonprofit organization, is dedicated to supporting these heroes and their families in their times of need. 
By donating your unwanted car to Patriotic Hearts, you'll be supporting job transition and job fair programs, veteran entrepreneurship, counseling, and retreats for combat veterans and their spouses. Call 800-560-3870. You'll receive a tax deduction and we'll arrange a free pickup at your convenience. Imagine the difference you can make in the lives of those who have given so much for our country. Your car donation will directly impact military families, veterans, providing them with the support they desperately need. Call 800-560-3870. You can become a part of something bigger. Join us in our mission to uplift and honor our military community. Call 800-560-3870 to donate your unwanted car. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Richard Risfet with this Market Update. Grains and oil seeds are mixed this morning after Friday's WASDE report and the long holiday weekend. Beans are up about six or seven cents. Corn is up one or two cents, while the wheats are down just a couple of pennies, led by Chicago. Soybean traders, they're focusing on the weather in Brazil, where recent rainfall was below normal in some growing areas. Brazil's CONAB cut its forecast for both beans and corn last week due to adverse weather and the world's largest exporter of beans. However, even with that, a record crop is still expected. Now, precipitation has been below normal in several states in the week through January 13th. Mato Grosso do Sul and northeastern Rio Grande do Sul both saw drier than normal conditions. Still, parts of Mato Grosso were wetter than normal. Wet weather is on the way for the state, but drier weather is in the longer-term forecast. Now, the USDA did raise its forecast for production and ending stocks for corn in the monthly report last week. Corn futures are still modestly higher this morning. Production is now seen at a record 15.342 billion bushels in the 23-24 marketing year that ends on August 31st. Yield was pegged at 177.3 bushels an acre. Stockpiles at the end of the fiscal year are now projected at 2.162 billion bushels. That's up from the previous forecast of 2.131 billion. About 1.36 billion bushels were in storage at the end of the prior marketing year. Investors have also raised their bearish bets on corn and beans. Investors held the net 237,209 futures contracts in corn in the week through January 9th. That is up from 200,949 the week before. Money managers were more bearish on beans, raising their net short position to 33,277 contracts. That's up from 8,870 the previous week. The VIX is trading just below 14 this morning, while the dollar is sharply higher at around 103, and crude oil prices are about 1% off. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Richard Ristvet. Don't you wish your life came with a warning app? Stop. That dog does not want to be petted. Just a little heads up before something bad happens. Move your coffee cup away from your computer. Oh, no, 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 no. So you can have more control. Stop. You're texting your boss by mistake. Uh-oh. Well, life doesn't always give you time to change the outcome, but pre-diabetes does. With early diagnosis and a few healthy changes like managing your weight, getting active, stopping smoking, and eating healthier, you can stop pre-diabetes before it leads to type 2 diabetes. It's easy to learn your risk. Take the one-minute test today at doihaveprediabetes.org. Warning, the cap is loose on that catch-up. Don't wait. You have the power to change the outcome. Visit doihaveprediabetes.org today. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its prediabetes awareness partners. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed. AOA. Now back to Jesse Allen. 
And welcome back to AOA, Agriculture of America. Well, of course, we have a lot going on across uh, politics, across Capitol Hill. We saw the Iowa caucuses, of course, on Monday night with uh, former President Donald Trump winning the Iowa caucus and then Republican candidate Ron DeSantis in second and Republican candidate Nikki Haley close in third place. So the presidential uh, season is definitely well underway and we also have issues on Capitol Hill with keeping the government funded and more. And I think a lot of this uh, can definitely be tied together with just what is all going on in Washington, D.C. And, and the broader climate here surrounding our country. And then, of course, uh, agriculture is tied in with this as well. we got to try and get a farm bill done, appropriations for USDA and more. So we're going to take a dive into everything that's happening here on the show today joining us he is uh, joining the show again he's been on before policy editor at farm progress josh bakey is with us josh thanks for uh, joining us on aoa today hope you're doing well hey good morning jesse good to be here hope you're doing as well also i am doing good doing good uh, everything i can to uh, stay warm as uh, no doubt everyone else is uh, trying to do the same as well here uh, this week across the u.s and i know a lot of eyes are on what's happening on capitol hill of course and uh, we got uh, a couple um, deadlines in front of us for keeping the government funded and open the first of two shutdown deadlines coming up on Friday. Uh, what is the latest you're hearing on Capitol Hill, Josh? Let's just start there. Are we going to see anything meaningful done or are we going to possibly extend this with another uh, continuing resolution and, and push the can down the road a little bit? Well, I think uh, pushing the can, can is uh, the smart money from what I'm hearing. You know, if you'll recall, uh, back in November, uh, we faced another a budget deadline for a shutdown. That time, uh, Congress passed a, a, a continuing resolution uh, setting up two funding deadlines. One of them is this Friday, January 19th, that funds four federal programs, including USDA. Uh, second one is coming up February uh, February 2nd. You know, by all accounts, uh, Congress is nowhere near uh, coming to agreement on the budget uh, over the weekend. Uh, the leaders in the House and Senate appear to have reached a tentative agreement that would uh, introduce an additional uh, Deadline, uh, one would be March 2nd, I believe. The other one would be March 8th, uh, basically extended another six weeks. Uh, Senate is likely set to vote on that today or tomorrow, and it looks uh, almost a certainty it's going to pass the Senate. Uh, the House is a little more tricky. Uh, there's some rumbling from those on, on the right that they're not happy uh, about this agreement. But I think uh, everybody thinks uh, Speaker Johnson is going to get the benefit of the doubt. They're going to at least let him pass this, and then we'll see what happens again in six weeks. Yeah, it's it's a very interesting dynamic, of course, and a lot of eyes are on the House of Representatives, as you indicated, Josh, in trying to get something done and trying to keep, you know, bipartisanship, because obviously we, we saw it here, you know, how many months ago with the hardliners in the House forcing out then House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, and one has to wonder if they don't get concessions from the current Speaker, Mike Johnson, could they try to do the same? I mean, there's a lot of politics wrapped up in just simply trying to keep this government 
funded and open right now, isn't there? Yeah, you know, in essence, we're back into the same situation we were in September when, when uh, Speaker McCarthy at the time uh, managed to negotiate a deal uh, uh, with a lot of the Democrats that led to his ouster. Uh, and, you know, right now it, it's it's the exact same scenario. I think the difference is right now is there doesn't seem to be the stomach for another protracted, you know, speaker battle. You know, they went through four or five candidates before finally agreeing on, on, uh, on Speaker Johnson. So I don't think there's a lot of desire to do that again. You know, however, it only takes one representative to to file the motion to vacate and it starts the whole process again so while i don't think that's likely at this point it's certainly not off the table and then if that happens you know all bets are off in terms of timing what happens after that well looking at appropriations and of course trying to get a new farm bill done uh, underneath everything going on I know that uh, farm bill writers have continued working on getting this uh, new farm bill done. We, of course, got the one-year extension of the 2018 farm bill. And what's the latest you're hearing in terms of this farm bill? And as I mentioned at the top of the segment, too, I mean, we're into presidential election season. So how much could that play a role in possibly delaying a new farm bill here, Josh? What's the latest you're hearing? You know, it's it's kind of a good news, bad news thing. I think the good news is being, like you said, it's a presidential election year. Uh, there, there's there's next to no chance that that the farm bill won't be extended if somehow we get up against the September 30th deadline. Nobody wants to to be blamed for that. Uh, but as far as you know, crafting a new bill, that's a whole other story. Uh, House uh, Agriculture Committee leader. Uh, uh, G.T. Thompson indicated uh, a few weeks ago that he hoped to introduce legislation in March for consideration. Uh, you know, now with appropriations being pushed back, uh, that seems to be up in the air because, you know, the general general feeling is the appropriations budget battle has to be completed before anything happens on the farm bill. So if we're still talking appropriations in March, uh, that just stands a reason that that the farm bill will probably be pushed back. And I think, uh, you know, while nobody's saying it publicly right now, the, the longer that gets pushed back, the more likely we are to see an extension of the bill that, you know, expired last September. We're talking with Josh Bakey, policy editor at Farm Progress. And Josh, I know tied up with uh, the Farm Bill, of course, is the nutrition title. And I know the Biden administration, you just wrote an article on this, uh, pushing for WIC funding. I believe uh, Ag Secretary Tom Vilsack is pressing and lobbying lawmakers for a little over a, a billion dollars to meet some of the increased WIC demand. If I if I saw that right as I was looking at things, what's What's the latest on this portion of things as we look at the women, infants, and children program? Yeah, you know, I, I think this is a great example of, of some of the tough issues that are going to have to be, you know, uh, they we're going to have to reach a compromise in order to, to get a new farm bill. Uh, that program you mentioned, it, it, it provides funding for uh, new mothers, you know, a prenatal care, uh, breastfeeding assistance, as well as kid uh, or uh, support for infants and uh, children under the age of five. Uh, the difference is it is not an entitlement program. So in essence, you know, like you see, you take something like Social Security or, or the SNAP program, Food Snaps, a lot of programs, anybody that's an eligible recipient receives benefits. Uh, whereas WIC is has a set budget for the year. So what, what happened uh, last year when Congress passed the continuing resolution, it continued to fund WIC at uh, at 2023 levels. However, uh, 
according to Secretary Vilsack, you know, almost a half a million kids, I believe that was 444,000 444, uh, new participants are in the program now. And currently all of them are being, uh, are, are receiving full benefits. So in essence, the, the funds are running out faster than they can, uh, than uh, they've been allocated for. And then on top of that, you have in, in 2021, uh, in the face of pandemic, Congress authorized an emergency uh, additional funds for WIC to allow think, uh, recipients to do things like purchase fruits and vegetables. That was uh, extended in 2022 and 2023. Now some on the Republican side are looking to cut back. They're saying the program has become too bloated. We need to cut those so-called emergency funds. So so not only do we have a funding shortfall because it's based on on last year's numbers, now there's, there's a push to uh, decrease benefits further. So, you know, according uh, the Biden administration officials held a call last week to kind of highlight uh, what they say are some of the risks. Uh, they predict, you know, if, if new funding is not uh, allocated to this program, you, we could be looking at uh, waiting lists for recipients, some people being denied care and other actions. So uh, that's obviously nutrition has, has been a big priority of, of the Democrats. Uh, Republicans have tended to pr- uh, uh, prioritize spending cuts more and mm-hmm. uh, you know where we end up in the legislation you know that's the question we've been asking for the past year and a half i know there's been a lot of uh, talk and the term has been thrown around uh, with some folks want to see more farm in the farm bill and i know it's been brought up and and talked about before about you know splitting nutrition out of the farm bill etc but i don't think there's much of an appetite for anything like that even though we have a lot of this back and forth about uh, shortfalls on funding, et cetera, I, I don't think there's much appetite for splitting nutrition out of the farm bill. I, would you agree with that, Josh? I would. I mean, you know, Chairman Thompson has said the same thing, uh, that he's not in favor of that. And, and and the truth is, you know, politically, it's just not feasible at this point. You have a, you know, you have a Democratic president, you have a nearly divided Senate and House. And and that's something that uh, the Democrats would never support, even though, you know, a, a small contingent of Republicans want to do that. So it's just, uh, it, it's not going to happen is the short answer, whether, mm-hmm. whether or not it's a good idea. Uh, you know, the politics aren't there at this point. So I don't think, I don't see that being the solution. Well, Josh, uh, great thoughts and uh, good discussion. One other thing I wanted to ask you about, too. I know some of the articles uh, you've been writing at farmprogress.com. You've been looking at the Supreme Court rejecting a chicken buyer appeal, and I thought this was interesting. Can you give us just a little background of what's going on there? Yeah, this is kind of an interesting case that goes back several years, but but in essence, you have uh, a group of, uh, you know, primarily large chicken buyers think, you know, major grocery stores, things like that are suing some of the major chicken processors, uh, accusing them of uh, price fixing uh, throughout the, you know, into the, into the 2000s, into the 2010s. And uh, a lot of these, uh, through these various lawsuits, a lot of the uh, processors have reached uh, settlement agreements with the plaintiffs. And uh the the the, the play or the, the defendants have made an agreement where they will share the uh, details of their settlements with each other, and uh, the the plaintiffs had hoped to put that down. They said that put them at a disadvantage when um, when they were making these deals, and the Supreme Court ruled in favor of the processors, said they were indeed allowed to share that information with each other. Uh, and, and recently, uh, a case went to court involving Sanderson Farms. They actually they actually prevailed in that case. So, you know, wh- where this leads, uh, w- you know, remains to be seen, but it was definitely a victory for the chicken processors. 
Well, Josh, appreciate the time. I know folks can find your latest stories online at farmprogress.com. And with that, we appreciate it. Josh Bakey, policy editor with Farm Progress. Thanks for joining us on AOA. Josh, we'll have you back on the show again soon. All right. Thanks a lot, Jesse. Nice talking with you. All right. Coming up next year, before we wrap up the program, we'll have a conversation with Alan Schaefer from the Engine Technology Forum. He joins us next on AOA. What I know about courage, I learned from my adoptive mom. She said sometimes you just gotta hold on and know we'll get through this. Mom, we are so high up. Hold my hand. <laughs> no, you hold my hand. Here we go. Learn about adopting a teen from foster care. You can't imagine the reward. Visit AdoptUSKids.org to find out more. I learned patience from my adoptive dad. All he had to say was, Hey, you got this. Just breathe. Hey. <laughs> hey we're pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> Might have to start a band. <laughs> I got it. Learn about adopting a teen from foster care. You can't imagine the reward. <laughs> Visit AdoptUSKids.org to find out more. This message is brought to you by AdoptUSKids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. Now. We tend not to think about now. We dream about tomorrow, relive yesterday. But sometimes we don't see what's right in front of us. Victory over cancer is in front of us. Right now, cancer research is saving lives. Cancer research funded by the V Foundation is leading to new discoveries and new treatments and ultimately, one day, victory over cancer. Give to the V Foundation. Right now, one out of every two men and one out of every three women will get cancer in their lifetime. Now is your moment. You may save someone you love. 100% of your donation goes directly to game-changing research. 100%. Donate at V.org. Because today's cancer research is tomorrow's victory. Don't give up. Don't ever give up. This is Around the Table, where we explore the benefits of cooperative ownership. Today, Neil Jockey, a corn trading expert with CHS, will provide a 2024 corn demand outlook. Neil, domestic corn use declined last year. Do you expect a rebound in 2024? 2023 was a very different year. We had a very poor crop in the Southern Plains. We were shipping corn from North Dakota through our cooperative systems, South Dakota, all the way down to Kansas and feeding the livestock industry down there. We have some problems with our domestic demand. Our livestock margins, our dairy margins, our swine margins, our poultry margins are all break even at best. And then of course you look at ethanol, ethanol margins are poor at the best. Currently we've came through some headwinds there, but our demand picture, we're just not growing demand. We're not growing livestock and we're not growing ethanol demand. Well, U.S. market share of world corn exports increased last year for the first time in three years. Do you expect more of the same in 2024? We increased for one basic reason, and that was Argentina had a crop disaster. Their crop was down 30% year on year. It's doing the opposite. We're going to grow 20 million met ton more corn in Argentina. They're going to steal every piece of export business they can to get back in the market. Our Brazilian production has exploded. Brazil is going to outpace the U.S. for exports for the first time since 2012. So uh, our export market does not look favorable. 
Well, how will corn supplies and demand affect planting decisions and marketing strategies, Neil? The market's expecting about 91 million acres. 91 million acres on a trend line yield will put our carryout close to 2.6 billion bushel or the highest carryout in the last 20 years in the U.S. We're going to have to store corn in the U.S. The U.S. is going to be the corn carryout for the world. If there's corn carries, meaning that corn's worth more next year than it is this year, the market has proven that the U.S. will be the place that the corn is carried. Thank you for joining us around the table. Learn more about the benefits of cooperative ownership at cooperativeownership.com. Non-attorney paid spokesperson. Could your house go into foreclosure? Are you behind on your mortgage payments? Does it seem like the bank has no interest in helping you save your home and you feel like you have nowhere to turn for help? Then we have good news for you. Foreclosure Protection Services can help save your home as they specialize in foreclosure assistance. That's all they do. If you're behind on your mortgage payments, being threatened with foreclosure, have been denied a loan modification, or been the victim of a predatory loan, it's critical that you call Foreclosure Protection Services now at 800-926-1701. Their network of attorneys and their agents are available to speak to you now. If you're behind on your mortgage payments, Foreclosure Protection Services can help stop the foreclosure process. Call today before it's too late. New laws are in effect that may save your home. Call Foreclosure Protection Services now at 800-926-1701. 800-926-1701. That's 800-926-1701. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed. AOA. Now back to Jesse Allen. And welcome back to AOA. Jesse Allen with you here. And joining us now, a conversation with the Engine Technology Forum as we get into 2024. Their executive director, Alan Schaefer, is with us. And Alan, thanks for joining the show once again. It's been a little while, but appreciate you uh, making the time to be on with us. Good morning, Jesse. Great to be with you. Well, as uh, as I mentioned, you've been on the show before. We talked a few months back when the Engine Technology Forum officially rebranded. It used to be known as the Diesel Technology Forum. And we want to get an update on, on where things stand here as we enter 2024. I guess uh, give us a, a broad view. What's in store for the Engine Technology Forum in the year ahead? Sure. Thanks, Jesse. Well, this is, a, this is our first year as the new Engine Technology Forum. And we are continuing to have a significant focus on diesel, but uh, where we are at this moment in the conversations around the country with energy and climate, environmental policy, uh, really present more opportunities for us to take on uh, education and outreach about the internal combustion engine and how important engines are today and will continue to be in the future uh, as we work to meet our, our decarbonization goals. So uh, we are we are squarely committed to to being part of the solution uh, for helping to, to decarbonize our economy. And this year is gonna be a, a really specific, uh, I would say manifestation of that. Um, there are a lot of balls in the air. Let me just say that right at the beginning. Uh, we are a very active regulatory environment. EPA has some major rules that are coming for commercial trucks that will establish more fuel efficient requirements in the future. Um, they also have some very major decisions to make on waivers that have been requested by California to implement some of the most aggressive policies to require fleets to purchase zero emission vehicles and require manufacturers to produce zero emission vehicles. So the courts are going to have a, of a, have a hearing on that also. Uh, so while we're also waiting for EPA to act on the necessary waiver, 
There's also litigation uh, by a good number of states um, in, the, in the Farm Belt and others that have uh, tried to put up a stop sign here and say, wait a minute, um, we don't want California policy in our states. Uh, we want the right to choose the best fuels and technologies that work for us. So that's uh, really, uh, I think, at the core of a lot of discussions for this year. I think for, for everybody that's in the industry that, that's using fuel and, and, uh, and technology, engines and tractors and trucks and that sort of thing, uh, we hope that we're going to see a moderation of fuel prices. We've had some ups and downs this past year on diesel prices, but according to the Energy Information Administration, there's going to be a settling out of that. Um, I think uh, close to $4 a gallon national average. And I know that uh, here on the East Coast, I filled up yesterday in my uh, my diesel um, Tahoe and we're, you know, about, uh, about 375. So uh, doing much better than mm -hmm. that at the outset here. So we're going to see some, I think, stabilizing fuel prices. Um, and the other thing that I think uh, comes to play for this year is um, uh, we're going to see some more action, I hope, on trying to make adjustments to EPA's renewable uh, volume obligations for renewable fuels. And that is a particular concern um, because of what they did last year, setting up um, some volumes uh, that the industry is already um, able to meet quite substantially. I think we're looking at about 21.5 billion gallons of renewable biofuels this year. And we already know that there's huge investments in, in growing uh, crushing capacity, about 20% mm -hmm. more crushing capacity coming online. So we know the industry is, is ready and willing and able to produce more than these volumes have, uh, have put down on paper. So uh, we're hoping that gets some further discussion and, and resolution in the coming year. Well, no doubt a full plate in the year ahead and uh, a lot of uh, a lot of policy related things in there, Alan, that you indicated. And I know, you know a lot of talk between federal versus state, et cetera, et cetera. You mentioned that California issue. Uh, to me, that seems like uh, one of the bigger ones that could impact uh, the industry here in the year ahead, Alan. It, it absolutely is, and it, it, it hangs out there with uh, a lot of uncertainty. Um, we have <clears throat> a number of states that for many years have adopted California vehicle emission standards for light-duty vehicles, and now more recently trying to adopt uh, California standards for, for heavy-duty vehicles, which are more stringent than the federal standards. And so that's a, that's a break from tradition. So this is the first time that we've, we would see some uh, lack of harmonization here in the U.S. So that meant if you're buying a commercial truck on in some states, you might have to meet uh, California standards, and in other states, might have to meet a federal standard. So you can see how that's complicated for manufacturers and for consumers. And it uh, honestly does not make sense in an industry that's um, nationwide, cross-country from one minute to the next. We need a, a harmonized approach um, to fuels and, and clean air policy. That's always worked better. Um, so we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens there. But we have seen... Um, a number of states uh, in the last year, legislatures take up legislation to uh, preserve vehicle choice. And that means that uh, they want to see that uh, there's no policies enacted that would limit or restrict any states, uh, local governments, municipalities from um, adopting the kind of vehicles that they need to do their job. So in other words, mm -hmm. no mandates for electric or zero emission vehicles, but just let, let the marketplace decide let the users pick which technologies and fuels work best for them. So I think there's a there's a tremendous uh, growing interest there. Um, there's been a bill passed in Congress, H.R. 1435, Preserving Vehicle Choice Act, which is now in the Senate, uh, does some of the same kinds of things. So 
in this very turbulent time of, of uh, politics and trying to meet decarbonization kind of standards, um, you know, I think that uh, we see engines and the things that we rely on every day for our, our farming, our trucking, et cetera, continuing to shine here. And we really need the kind of policies that are neutral and provide them for the opportunity to compete going forward. And that's what we're going to be working on this year to make sure folks understand the benefits of advanced engine technology, what's really happening in the fuel space. Last year, uh, the United States produced more petroleum than ever before with 20% fewer wells. So uh, we are a nation of energy. Uh, energy drives everything we do, and uh, we have a lot of it and uh, are using it as wisely as possible. So I think that um, you know we're going to be focused a lot on those kinds of discussions in the coming year. Well, Alan, great thoughts, and I'm sure folks have questions. EngineTechForum.org is a great place to start, isn't it? That is. EngineTechForum.org for more information. We're out of time. We do appreciate the conversation, though. Executive Director of the Engine Technology Forum, Alan Schaefer. Alan, thanks for joining us on AOA today. We'll have you back on soon. Thanks, Jesse. Have a good day. All right. We're out of time here on AOA. I'm Jesse Allen. Have a great rest of your day. We'll talk to you tomorrow. The average American eats 250 eggs per year, which translates to a total annual consumption of 76.5 billion eggs in the U.S. About 60% of eggs produced here in the U.S. are used by consumers, and about 9% are used by the food service industry. A chef's hat is said to have a pleat for each of the many ways you can cook eggs. The color can range from white to deep brown. Hens with white feathers and earlobes lay white-shelled eggs, while hens with red feathers and earlobes lay brown-shelled eggs. Because breeds that lay brown eggs are typically slightly larger birds, they require more food, making brown eggs usually more expensive than white. You can tell whether an egg is fresh or stale by dropping it in water. A fresh egg will sink, but a stale one will float. Eggs also contain all the essential protein, minerals, and vitamins, and egg yolks are one of the few foods that naturally contain vitamin D. And eggs are also good for your eyes because they contain lutein, which helps prevent age-related cataracts and muscle degeneration. These farm facts brought to you by the American Ag Network. In Iraq, our truck hit a roadside bomb. I had about 16 surgeries on my hand so that I could regain function. And when I came home, I needed a new roof due to a storm. And my electrical was deemed unsafe. And I was about to lose homeowner's insurance as well. I didn't really know where to go in order to get help. And so I applied for Operation Homefront Critical Financial Assistance Program. They've really been a blessing. Operation Homefront is a safety net. A lot of veterans, they fall through the cracks sometimes. And Operation Homefront, they catch us. It's been a blessing to us. It's a blessing to other veteran families. And it's good to know that when we come home, there are people who are there that care about us and want to see us do well and want to see us succeed. And we feel it and we appreciate that. I would say you guys are angels behind closed doors. Visit operationhomefront.org to learn more.